0: Arnie, is this working tonight? This thing? Yes, it is. That's brilliant. Draw something. I'm gonna draw a picture of you in the front row. Let's see. There's your chair, and there's you, and your your eyes are sleepy. You're not in here. Okay, let's go to Romans, (laughs) Romans chapter 8. I'm still settling in. I've been living the wildlife too long. Romans 8, we're going to be going to verse 22. Keep in mind also that coming up real soon is our food drive for the Salvation Army coming up in May. There'll be a lot more on that very soon. This morning, before we get started with Romans 8 and before we have prayer, this morning I woke up, usually I've got a train of thought to go by, and I just get a bunch of coffee together and go up to the study. But today, this is the first time in years, I think, where it sem- seemed that the Holy spirit was keeping me downstairs and I didn't know the reason I did some exercises and then got a text from Empress Claudia announcing and the uh, that's what I call her cause she, you know, Claudius, the emperor, Emperor Claudius. but the text announced the homecoming of our beloved brother, Chuck Dowdy, whom we prayed for recently, and immediately I felt to call Elaine, and we had a wonderful conversation for about fifteen minutes. She she just was she astonished me. Her she spent the last forty eight hours straight with him as he was going through the last steps of the death shadowed valley, and she didn't sleep for forty eight hours. But her voice was filled with kindness and gratitude for the word for you toest phalanx. And for her time here, her friends, she had some very deep connections here. And it's, it's you'd have to search far and wide to find a couple who were more influenced and profoundly responsive to the Word of God in these. They came here, as you know, to for one reason, they moved, and they spent 13 years where you're sitting. just to be in a face-to-face scenario where our joy is made full. And Chuck was a man of private piety but apparent love and a remarkable servant of Christ. Elaine was very comforting to me because to hear someone's voice who's going through mourning and to hear a voice of mourning but hope and victory and faith and love, and kindness and wisdom i i was amazed at her wisdom and assured her and i assure her again elaine i know you'll be listening to this that the lord has much for you yet in the years to come and she certainly has much to offer to us in the kingdom of god and to us as a body of believers i didn't know what to say and it is kind of private, but I'll tell you because you're part of the family and part of the people who sit at the table. And I said, what should I say to Elaine? And it was almost conversational. Tell her, blessed are you, Elaine, for the one who comforts you is the father of all mercies. And I had just read, when I was downstairs, I had just read Jürgen Moltmann, Life After Death, mourning and consoling. Where do we go when we die? The whole gamut of questions He in his book called The Life of Hope. And the last thing I read, I think, before I got the news was, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And blessed is Elaine and those of you that will also be mourning the loss of Chuck Dowdy because your comforter is the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And to him, and one, we actually laughed during the course of the conversation because I went through a little phase, you probably remember it, where I would have a split study and I'd have two messages and then I'd have two titles. And so I'd say, I have two messages tonight and, you, and I'd have a raising of hands. Which one do you want? And then Chuck got tired of that. and he, One night he just said, just teach. And that was the end of that little habit. That, the, but we, she laughed about that today, and so did I, because that was Yahweh bar, borrowing his vocal cords to say that. Just teach. So you got it, Chuck. Here we go. Let's take a moment of prayer. We thank you, Father, for a, a life well-lived, For you initiate to all humanity, but only a few respond and live in a life of responsiveness to you through the spirit and Chuck Dowdy is one of those. He lived in a responsive existence to you and became responsible and certainly committed his spirit to you and entrusted his life to you. We know that where he is now in paradise, I has not seen nor has ear heard, nor has it ever entered into the hearts of any human being, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And we thank you, Father, for Elaine and for the years that she has ahead of her in the gifts of wisdom that you've given her, the gift of comfort and consolation, and the many gifts that you've given her. Give her assurance that her days of creativity in your Holy Spirit have only begun a new day. And we thank you, Father, in this congregation that all of us here should know that whatever age we are, we can be youthful in our creativity and the Holy Spirit can continually bring new beginnings to us no matter what stage of life, no matter what age and no matter what our circumstances. And we pray that you'll open our hearts and minds tonight to be able to understand the scriptures with Christ, the crucified, the crucified Lord of glory. We understand, Father, that death is very often not at all glamorous. It is never a pretty thing. It's never a thing that we may expect it to be, for oftentimes it's harsh and hard. But we always think of the one whose death was most harsh and most hard, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the glory that shall follow, and the glory that has indeed followed. For to see him... And to see his countenance is to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in his face. May that light that shines fully and brightly on Chuck tonight shine on Elaine, shine on each and every one of us. And we thank you for this opportunity in your word. May the spirit make it eminently clear what we're about to study. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. One word. To start with, I mentioned it a few times. It's the word promiety. I was familiar with the word aseity, which is an attribute of God in which he is self-existent and that he does not depend on anything outside of himself for his existence, his subsistence, his livingness, his being, aseity. He is the self-existent one. His name is I am that I am. I will be what I will be. I am that I am. Aseity. But I think promiety takes us even further because promiety means that the name that we give to God, God, is the same as God for us. Promiety is God's being for us in a way that is remarkable. In other words, Promeity means that the self-existent one who has no dependent existence on any other being, he is other than creation, which has only a dependent existence and no independent existence. Yet his very existence is for you. His very name is for you. His very being is for us. And for us, we can fan that out to be for all of humanity. We can fan that out to be all of creation. And we can fan it out further and see a horizon of all of creation diachronically or all creation, all created reality in all of its times. God cannot be referred to apart from his pro Meity for us. You can even consider it pro me if you want, and it wouldn't be too selfish, I don't think. Pro God for us, and it began to emerge as we plowed through Romans chapter eight to a completion, which is Romans eight thirty one and thirty two. That's where pro will reach its climactic moment as a doctrine. The doctrine of divine promeity. Romans 8.31 is at the very numerical center of Romans. And there it says, if God be for us, and where it says if God be for us, it means if God be for us in this way, in specific ways that are outlined, really all the way through Romans 1 through 8, all the way Romans 9 through 11, all the way really Romans itself, and if you want to even fan the horizon wider, all of the scriptures speak of God for us. Promeity. And there is a thing called cosmological promeity. And that means that God laid out the universe in all of its trillions of luminaries and stars and billions of galaxies for one little tiny speck called the earth, and cosmological promeity. There's providential promeity. God arranges all things and synchronizes things and synergizes all things together for the good, the ultimate good of those who are called according to his purpose, which we will find out just happens to be all of humanity in the one man, Christ Jesus. There is historical promiety. There is the promiety of the incarnation. There is justification promiety. There is predestination promiety. We're going to see all these things. This is just introduction tonight to a doctrine that we will be expanding, but let's just get a little bit, Base in Scripture. We'll also be going to Genesis chapter twenty-two and verse fourteen. Genesis twenty-two fourteen will be coming up in our introduction on promeity, divine promeity, the Christian doctrine of divine promeity. Romans eight twenty-two. For we know that all the creation pasa hecatesis, thats the horizon of God's redemptive love laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs until now. That means all of creation and all of its times, including Paul's now, including our now. But not only is that so, on top of that, we, those who have the first fruits of the spirit, that being the messianic community, what we call the church, Christ corporate, I'm not going to throw away the term the church, even though I mentioned before I don't really like the term church or the church. It's ekklesia in the Greek. It means a messianic community. The body of Christ is even as good. Christ corporate is even better. Those who have the first fruits of the spirit, that would be a good name for a church. I guess if I was starting out all over again thinking of a name for a church, I'd call it the church of the 10th leper. Because we've all been cleansed, but we just chose to turn around and say thank you. The church, that's a good idea for some, Brian, you can call your church that. It's, it's okay. You can, And you don't have to say, Rick gave me this, or, you know, I got this from Rick, or any of this. I don't want, but anyways, you can put it in writing if you want sometime, but. Those who have first fruits of the Spirit sigh deeply in ourselves. We all know a feeling of indescribable homesickness sometimes, and while we're home, and it's because our real home is elsewhere. It's sighing deeply in ourselves. You should know that that's a normal experience, and it is normal to resist the way things are in this world because it's an evil age it's a it's a kind of a no- normality awaiting eagerly the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship or that which he calls the adoption that is the redemption of our bodies the redemption of our bodies is simply a term for our future bodily resurrection we could say the resurrection of our bodies and have it be equally meaningful for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God but we will be changed so that we can inherit it meaning fully fully experience it fully and so verse 24 talks about hope verse 24b I want to jump to however hope that is seen is not hope faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of not things of things not seen, because who hopes for what one sees? That is, or who has who hopes for what one has already fully realized? We have not fully realized the glorious freedom of the children of God because it requires a change in our bodily being. It requires a transcorporeality, a transphysical body. But if we are hoping, that is. Hoping expectantly by faith for what we do not presently see, we eagerly wait for it to be seen with perseverance. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We've already kind of gone over this ground, certainly not exhaustively, certainly not doing it its proper justice, but enough for our treatment of Romans, the epistle in 2019. So here we take up with verse 26, prayer. Promeity is even involved in prayer. Promeity involved in prayer. In the same way. Now, what does he mean by in the same way? The reason I skipped 24a is because I skipped it and I didn't write it down. (laughs) But in verse 26, in the same way, if you thought there was a spiritual reason, you're dead wrong. Verse 26, in the same way, in the same way. Just teach. Okay, Chuck. In the same way. And what does he mean by in the same way? He means by the spirit. There is no livingness. There's no prayer. There's no mission. There's no good works. There's no love, hope, faith without the spirit in the same way that is by the spirit who is the one in whom we wait in the same way by the same power, the spirit that we wait in, we pray in in the same way. The Spirit keeps coming to help us in our weakness insofar as we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit pleads in our behalf. Here's the Holy Spirit for us. The promenade of God, the Holy Spirit, with sighs, you'd call it groans, moans, Too deep for words. Here the omnipresent spirit. Who sighs and groans. With all of creation. And all of its times. Is very particularly present. In us. And he's with us. And in behalf of us. Making intercession. For what we should be praying for. But don't even know what that is. In fact, we don't know what is good for us. We don't know what's really good for others, for those we love, as the Spirit does, not as the Spirit does. He no doubt prays as Jesus did. If Jesus is asked, teach us to pray, and he prays like this, and Pastor Brown's doing a wonderful series on those petitions we call the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, Matthew 6. And we assume that the Holy Spirit prays like Jesus prays for the Father's kingdom to come in all its splendor and glory and majesty and power, for the Father's benevolent and saving will to be done, which is the salvation of all humankind. And they're coming to the knowledge of the truth and the reality that's embodied in Jesus. That's what he prays. For the Father's benevolent will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Without the Spirit, there is no effective prayer. No effectual intercession on behalf of others. That's why we read in Jude 20, Jude the 20th verse didn't know Jude wrote that. She did. She wrote Jude. We're always wondering, who's Jude? Well, there she is. Jude, (laughs) Jude 20, forgive me. I have sinned grievously. Mea culpa. That is why we read in Jude 20 that our livingness in Christ involves, quote, praying in the Holy Spirit. The emphasis is on "in the Holy Spirit." You hear a lot oftentimes someone does something well, or a child does something well, enthusiastic, and the parent says, "That's the spirit." Well, I'm saying, "That's the spirit." Without the spirit, there is no effectual prayer or intercession. Try this sometime when you say, pray for me. Say, pray for me in the Holy Spirit. How about instead of our prayers, go out to somebody. Boy, that's scary. Throw my prayers at you. How about instead of that, our prayers uttered in the Holy Spirit have gone out and up to the throne of God's grace for you. Verse 27, and the one, this is speak, referring to God the Father, who searches hearts. The one, of course, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all search hearts. But in this, there's a Trinitarian function going on here. And the one, God the Father, who searches hearts, that means he sees what goes on in the thoughts and intents of people's innermost being. Jeremiah seventeen ten. 1 Samuel 16, 7 through 9, he looks upon the heart. The one, the father who searches hearts, knows the mindset of the spirit. He knows the intentionality. He knows just what the spirit is thinking and intending. Because he always intercedes for the saints as God would have it. That's how I translate that. The Holy Spirit always intercedes for. There's promiety in prayer. The Holy Spirit is for the saints in prayer. When he prays for the saints, it's not just that the saints' needs will be met, but that their mission will be effective toward the people who are not yet saints. He always intercedes, always intercedes. If the Holy Spirit were to introduce himself to you tonight, he would say to you, I'm always here. The Holy Spirit's always here. He's always initiating to us. Few of us live the existence of responsiveness to him. And few of us and those of us who do respond don't always do it with regularity because distractions abound and we tend to pay attention to those things. And we tend in some cases to give the attentiveness due only to worship to things like sports, or film, or human activities, or human accomplishments, or human cathedrals. We give the attentiveness that's on, that is only due to God in worship, to things that don't require or desire our veneration. They may desire it. We don't even venerate our own lives. We venerate God, and we lay our lives down one for another. And so... As God would have it, prayer, intercession for the saints as God would have it. Well, now, just how would God have it? He's called the God of all grace in 1 Peter 5.10. He's the Father who delights to give us his kingdom in Luke 12.32. 12, 12, He's the God who wills the salvation of all human beings, especially those who are the believing In 1 Timothy 4.10. So the Spirit always prays in connection with that. All the intercessions of the Spirit is related to the groaning of creation for emancipation. I heard their groanings, said Yahweh to Moses, about the slave race of Jews in Egypt. I heard their outcry, and I've come down to deliver them. Picture that as a new exodus. The Lord hears the groans of all creation in slavery to decay. He comes down and he has come down to deliver all creation. All intercession of the spirit is related to the groaning of creation. The spirit is in creation, all of it, sharing the groans of creation, even as Jesus on the cross In his strong crying and tears. Identified with the screaming creation. What the creation would be. Apart from God. In its own independent existence. Is God forsakenness. All the intercession of the spirit. Is related to the groaning of creation. For emancipation. For the Father's name to be universally hallowed or held sacred. For his kingdom to come. For his liberating, transforming will to be done on earth as it is in the heavens. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Means nothing other than God's benevolent and saving will being done his benevolent and saving will being done and that his saving and creative justice be enacted for his justice is not punitive, but creative and restorative. And he even creates justice for the perpetrators of evil and gives them righteousness as he creates justice for the victims of evil and gives them justice in the reconciliation of all things. So God's will to be done on earth means that his saving and creative justice be enacted, that ultimately all that is in heaven and on earth would be reconciled, that all would be recapitulated in Christ Jesus and thus gloriously rectified. Our praying is part of our responsive existence in Christ Jesus. It's a livingness in which we respond to God and become responsible. We are already beginning therefore to have dealings here with the promeity of God. As we are really. Throughout Romans 1 through 8. Romans 9 through 11. And in a still larger sense in all of Romans. For in Romans eleven thirty-two, What else but divine promeity? consigns all of humanity into the prison of unbelief in order to have mercy upon all. That sounds like God for us. God, by name, cannot be named other than God for us. That's his name. Promete, or God as God for us, is at the heart of Romans, even as the Lamb is at the heart revealing God's promeity to be for us all in Romans 8:32 for God did not spare his only son but freely handed him over for us all and how much more then having not spared his son will he freely give us all things and so promeity God for us is at the heart of Romans in 831 as, it, as the Lamb is at its heart in 832 revealing God's promity to be for us all to be even universal. Now we've gone way past the enthusiasm of realizing that there's no such thing as an eternal hell. I'm talking about God now. I'm talking about who God is now. It's time to get to know him with that fear behind us. Now, at first, I conceived of a doctrine, divine promeity. At first, now listen, see if you can picture this with me, because when I first thought of it, I thought of it as one among other doctrines in a list. prayer, And they all began with PR. I said PR, the PR is prayer. Providence, predestination, and preservation, and promiety fits in there as a list. After further consideration, promiety does not belong to a list of these doctrines as one item in the list. Rather, prayer, providence, predestination, and preservation, as well as many other divine functions, including justification and sanctification, are all operations of God's promiety. So it should be promiety and then listed underneath that providence, prayer, predestination, preservation, justification, sanctification, and all these other things. God for us first. So all of these are functions and operations of God's promiety. So Yes, prayer itself, looking back a little, is a demonstration of God's promeity simply because the Spirit makes intercession for us, for us. That's God for us. Promeity means that we cannot separate the name God from the name God for us. And I hope you get that because that summarizes the doctrine in a succinct form. Promeity means, quidsit promeity, promeity, quidsit, what is it? Promeity means that we cannot separate the name God or Yahweh from the name God for us, which I will illustrate shortly, which is related in some way to the Hebrew term. I don't like when you harden up, the letters and call it Jehovah. Jehovah is an inferior pronunciation for what should be Yahweh. Yireh, Y-I-R-E-H is a superior pronunciation to Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide or God provides divine primary. It's really Yahweh, Yireh, Yahweh, Yireh. We will see this in Genesis 22. Be ready there. And so this word, it's related in some way to this Hebrew word, Yahweh, Yira. i I decided one day that I wanted to learn how to write Hebrew as I can sort of write Greek. But then I decided if I do that, it'll distract from what I'm supposed to be doing in terms of theological insight. So I'm not going to do it. And uh, another translation would read as Adonai. Adonai is a word that Jews like to use for God because they still hold so sacred the tetragrammaton or YHWH and the the vowel points A and E are put in here. They so hold the name sacred and I don't blame them, but I don't think it's I think it's almost superstitious in some regards, but the they say Adonai which means Lord or sovereign instead of Yahweh. And I respect that, but I will use the word Yahweh because Yahweh Yeshua is my savior. It means the Lord will provide. It's sort of related to Yahweh Yira is sort of related to divine pramity God for us as we'll see providence. What's providence? What is it? We hear the word providence. We hear the word providential. Providence is an operation of the premeity of God. Of God whose name is God for us. There is within providence what we might call a cosmological, and this is where I told you we're going to get a little theological, Cosmological. And I abbreviate this in my notes sort of like this, cosmology, not cosmetology. God doesn't really care how you look, but people do, I guess. Kind of sad. But anyways, cosmological. There's a cosmological promeity. And I've tried to reduce this a little bit. Incidentally, um, I read a review of Hugh Ross's book called creator in the cosmos by our very own tony sadar wrote it for the washington times back in 18 was it 2018 excellent review and i don't even feel like i got to read the book now so that's how good the review was but in his book he talks about cosmology and i then finally came to realize and i bounced this off tony and he seemed to think it was okay That there is a thing that we could call cosmological promiety or God showing himself for us in the wide expanse of the universe by the very design of it, by the very vastness of it, by the very exquisite and elegant design of the universe, which I hold to be as after giving it about 40 years of thought, I hold to be 13.9 billion years like Hugh Ross recently discovered the science on it seems true, true science. When you say science, you have to distinguish it from true science. But what I mean that we call it cosmological promeity, I'm not trying to make fancy terms, but you got to almost invent language to communicate the deeper things of God. By that, I mean that God constructed the almost infinitely immense universe of what Lonergan called proportionate being in order that life on this tiny speck of dust called planet Earth would be bodily livable in by human beings. If you understand cosmology, you almost see it as a futile search for life on other planets because God didn't design the universe for life on other planets. He designed the whole universe for life on one little insignificant speck of dust called Earth. And that's where Christ was crucified. So you can get on the enterprise and ride it to places where no man has ever been before, but God will have been there. Now, I told you, we're going to not teach Galatians verse by verse necessarily, at least now. But in the spirit in which Paul dealt with a situation in Galatia, We're going to deal in the same spirit with situations, especially aberrations in thinking in our own time and storm them like a citadel, storm them like a fortress. And so as physicist Hugh Ross has indicated, if the universe were any bigger or any smaller, or if it had been constructed in an even slightly different way from what it is exactly, exactly then there would not have been a possibility for bodily life on this planet. So the whole thing was arranged for us. God is for us in his design of the vast universe of what is known as proportionate being. Now, what do we mean by proportionate being? It means that in the universe, there are things that are proportionate one to another by saying one thing is far greater. There's animals and there's amoeba, there's stars There's galaxies, there's humanity, and there's the crocodile. A lot of people today would like to equate those two in terms of their significance or importance to God. But Jesus said, you are worth more than many sparrows. So I guess some of the greenies got to take a step back. There are vast galaxies, and there are tiny atomic and even subatomic particles. There are animals, and there are amoebas. They are in proportion to one another, even as you can compare the size or the significance of one part of created being with another. God's being is not proportionate, however, to anything in the universe. His uncreated being is altogether, capital O-T-H-E-R, other. Altogether other. To confront him is a fearful thing in a way, not because he's judgmental, but because he's so other than anything we could have ever imagined or known, even as his kingdom is so other. He is altogether other than the proportionate being of the created universe. However, it is God's intention to be in all of creation and so to be all in all. and for all of creation to be in him. This was called perichoresis, as we've studied it before, P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. It'll be in print, don't worry. It means mutual indwelling. Gregory Nazianzus of the the Patristic Theologians coined the term, and more recently, universal perichoresis was coined by, or used again by Jürgen Moltmann, especially in a fairly recent conference in St. Andrews in Scotland where I first read the term, universal indwelling. God in the universe, the universe in God. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that God may be all in all. In any case, there is that which we might call, and that's all I want you to understand for now, God's promeity cosmologically expressed. God is shown to be for, little old us by his exquisite design of the vast universe of proportionate being. Therefore, when the scripture says that the celestial heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm nineteen one, one, this is never, I've never taught it this way, but listen, when the scripture says that the celestial heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm nineteen one. It means that the trillions of stars in the billions of galaxies in this 13.9 billion year old universe are proclaiming and revealing the glory of his grace and kindness toward us by and in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.7. If the heavens declare the glory of God, the glory of God is his promity, his grace They declare his promiety, his foreness for you individually, for us universally. God's promiety, therefore, second phase, is also revealed in what is called his providence. I'm expecting you as students of the word, especially those that are veterans, you can take off on some of these thoughts. You can say, well, God's providence or God's promenade is also revealed in this aspect or this aspect. I hope you'll take off on it and not just reiterate this. God's promiety is also revealed in what is called his providence. And here's verse 28 of Romans. Look at it. On top of that, we know for sure that for those who love God, that is those that, now listen carefully, Because God's love is at once his love for us and our love for him. Those who love him are those whom God loves. And that's everybody. That's all. That's all. That's all. That's all, folks. We know for sure that those who love God, that is those whom God loves, and especially in those whom God pours out his spirit in pours out his love he is synergizing making all things work together benevolently and beneficently for the good for the good for the good by those whom god's god loves paul says by those whom god loves this is this is giving the sense that's what my translation will hopefully do if i ever get to do it by those whom god loves this is still romans 8 28 b I mean, Paul says, those who are the called, meaning those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and therefore called into being as a new creation according to his purpose. Providence is the reconciliation of history to Christological eschatology. Providence is the reconciliation of history to a Christ-filled eschatology. The divine purpose called prothesin or prothesin here, P-R-O-T-H-E-S-I-N, also found in Second Timothy 1.9, God's purpose. And perhaps if we have room, I'll write that out a little bit. Prothesin, P-R-O, yeah, T-H-E-S-I-N. Prothesin or prothesin accent here, prothesin. Purpose, P R O T H E S I N, it's also found in Second Timothy one nine, where his purpose is linked with his grace, which the writer says, which he gave to us in and by Christ Jesus before the creation of time as measured in eons. (laughs) If God gave us the grace in Christ Jesus before time was even created, as measured in eons, then his grace came to you unconditionally and without contingency on your part. 13.7 billion years before you were. You received grace in Christ Jesus, so it couldn't have been when you walked down the aisle. Providence is the reconciliation of history to eschatology, Christ-centered eschatology. The divine purpose here in Romans 8.28 is precisely his determined and unstoppable resolution to sum up everything universally and diachronically in Christ. See that in Ephesians one 11, where it talks about his unstoppable resolution in the context of Ephesians one nine through 11, that's going to be the pivotal verse or passage in our upcoming doctrine, which I'm going to entitle the Christian doctrine of instauration. And it, if To do it justice, it would have to be as long as Ramelli's book on the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis. <laughs> so, I don't know. But we're going to handle it anyways. Consequently, those whom he loves, also known as those whom he calls according to his purpose, are ultimately everybody, though especially for now those who believe, 1 Timothy 4.10. Now, regarding providence and incidentally, there is a doctrine sheet from six years ago, this Sunday, April 21st. Six years ago, on April 21st of 2013, April 21st, something comes to mind. Dave Bradshaw's birthday and Kathy McClory's birthday. Just some. I told you I wasn't going to do birthdays anymore, but it just slammed into my mind. So, you know, grab them and wish them a happy birthday. So then... And if you ever do that again to me, I will retire despite the threat by Mark O'Donnell to beat the tar out of me if I ever do. So, (laughs) I'd be an honor to get beat up by you, Mark. But anyways, I look back and Wolfhart Pannenberg wrote the following about Providence. And listen carefully to it because I think it's pretty good and it also gives us hope when we go through sometimes personal, what we consider to be disasters or catastrophes, which are often simply opportunities for new beginnings. And listen carefully. Pannenberg, it is the supreme art of God's world government to cause good to come of evil. He quotes the all-important Genesis 50, 20 there. And And in this way, to overcome evil with good as Jesus commanded his disciples to do, Matthew 5.39, and as Paul formulated it as a rule of Christian life, Romans 12.21. Hence, there grow from historical disasters opportunities for new beginnings. This is true for the church's history as well. God's judgments on his church, force renewal on it, or bring it by a detour to the state it was resisting. That's a wonderful definition of providence. Providence as a function of divine promaety. Now, Genesis 22. This is what slammed like a speeding locomotive and made me leap tall buildings with a single bound and outrun a speeding bullet. Don't experiment on that with me now. But we've seen Genesis 22. I want to see this. In Genesis 22, and I only have time to touch on this tonight, especially verse 14, we see a remarkable window into the premeity of God. And I'm going to have to leave it to the Spirit to teach you on this not only right now to enlighten you but as we go from here to have this dawn on us but Genesis 22 going to read several translations first the complete Jewish Bible an excellent translation I've noted the copyright information on all of these translations so that you can get them if you want to because they'll be on the written form of this but the complete Jewish Bible edited by David Stern says Avraham called the place, Adonai Yireh, or Yahweh Yireh, we would say. Or, Adonai will see to it. means literally, Adonai will see. Adonai provides, in other words. As it is said to this day, on this mountain, Yahweh, he says Adonai in his Jewish translation, on the mountain, Yahweh, Adonai is seen. Now, another translation, the Bible in basic English. Genesis 22:14 says, "And Abraham gave that place, and this is the place where God spared Isaac, and where Abraham said to Isaac, Elohim, God, will provide himself a lamb." Abraham gave that place that name, Yahweh, Yirah As it is said to this day, in the mountain, the Lord is seen. I'll give you a hint so, in case I, some of you drop off. In the mountain, the Lord, Yahweh, is seen. The mountain, Calvary. When you have lifted me up, you will know that I am he. There is no revelation beyond the revelation of a crucified Jesus that can reveal more about God. Indeed, on the mountain, Yahweh was seen in Yeshua as he hung affixed by spikes to a Roman cross. This just happens to be, I guess what they call Holy Week and we're coming up on what they call Good Friday Try to forget all that tradition, but Jesus Himself put it this way to his opponents in John 8 28 who are seeking to kill him in John 5.18. He put it that way. You'll know that I am, is all it says. You'll know Yeshua as Yahweh when you've lifted me up. Crucified Christ. Yahweh was seen on the mountain called Golgotha. On this mountain. Yahweh is seen. On this mountain, God provided himself a lamb. There's primatee in the lamb at the heart and center of Romans. We've hit it tonight like we may not hit it again. Although we will not done, we're not done yet. In a lesser but still significant sense, Yahweh was seen on the mount where he brought the famous Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, the minority community in Judea, the minority community in this evil age, a kind of ethic for them. Moreover, Yahweh was seen in Yeshua, as Pastor Jeff Stewart so powerfully demonstrated in his recent message, on the Mount of Transfiguration as the divine warrior. When Christ whole face and garments even changed their appearance and glory. Yahweh was seen on the Mount. God provide. This is the lamb that God provided. And this is the divine warrior. that would storm the citadel of sin and death and be victorious. On Mount Calvary, however, also known as Golgotha Skull Hill, Yahweh was seen in the totality of his love for us. And even when he comes in his universal manifestation, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Yahweh is only known in his piercings for us, for us. Yahweh was seen in the totality of his love for us in John 8. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. That means I am. Yeshua am Yahweh. Even to this day, the saying prevails on this mountain. Yahweh will see, or we will see Yahweh. This is Yahweh yirah divine promiety, providing himself as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is divine promiety in the form of Providence. In the person of the crucified Lord of glory. Genesis 22, 14. And I'll say a couple more translations to give you clarity here and we'll close. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it. And I put in brackets, the lamb. This goes back to 22, 8. It will be provided on the Lord's mountain. It is referring to the lamb, Genesis twenty two eight, compared with Romans 8.32, the place where God spared Abraham's only son. He did not spare his own son. You see, when someone dies, the one who dies does not experience death. The one who loses them experiences their death. Jesus said, if you keep my sayings, you'll not experience death. You may experience the dying, the dying phase, and even share much of the pain and agony that our Lord shared in his dying. Of course, not the dying for the sin. We do not experience death. But when we lose someone we love, we experience their death. I say that to say the only person who in dying experienced death His death was Jesus, but also the father experienced the death of his son with the infinite grief of infinite love. And so it, another translation, the lamb will be provided on the Lord's mountain. That's Holman Christian Standard Bible. And finally, in the God's word to the nations. Abraham named that place. The Lord will provide. It is still said today on the mountain of the Lord. It will be provided. All of these are senses of the same thing. Divine promity revealed in Calvary's cross. And in the giving and offering of the lamb and the lamb didn't just go because the Father said to, the Lamb also made his own decision. For as the problem began with a man, the solution ended with a man's decision. Christ Jesus made the decision of salvation for all mankind, even as Adam made the decision of condemnation for all mankind. And the Son's decision accorded with the Father's. So that this promeity in closing is universal is dramatically indicated again with Jesus' own announcement in John 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will drag all unto me. The word is drag, not draw. He's speaking as the ultimate fisher of men. When I'm lifted up, that's the time I cast the net and pull in. The fish, the ultimate fisher of men, catches all men in his saving net. This is the first part only of a doctrine called the doctrine of divine promity or God for us. Thank you, Father. What else can I say?